I, I think it's always got to do with the transformation, the transformation of the space, of the body, of the narrative. And, and at first I was very interested in how beautiful that transformation is within that kind of suspended disbelief, you know, in terms of theater and drama. And then you realize there's this whole other type of transformation that that doesn't require or doesn't approach its, itself or its transformation through a suspended disbelief. It's based in the real and the abject and, and failure and, and mess and mass. Uh, the human body is indeed truly transformational and, and how it can transform spaces around it and how, of course, space can transform the body. It's almost like a... A, a painting that you can never complete, a photograph you can never capture. Uh, uh, something just so fleeting about it, without it trying to be fleeting. It's it just is. I think that's what what, what really drew me in. From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, this is the ICA podcast where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 5, featuring performance artist Gavin Creston and his spectacular and haunting participatory performance, Yet to be Determined. The work was first performed in Makanda at the 2018 National Arts Festival, and then in September 2018, it moved to the University of Cape Town's Bindery Theatre, where it was staged as part of the ICA Live Art Festival. Take aim and fire at the I, I kind of see it as this, this kind of shift between riffing off a kind of nakedness and nudity. You know, when do we have a body? When do we have an object? And when do we have Gavin's body? Uh, and and I think it's 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 that vulnerability is almost like the glue that kind of holds that together. Because I've certainly noticed that like the the more vulnerable and naked and open you are as the performer, um, th- that's often mirrored in the audience, and and the audience is prepared to get open and vulnerable if you offer moments of intimacy. In today's episode, we return to the intimate Bindery Theatre to experience yet to be determined in its vibrancy of colour, sound and sensation. A visceral ceremonial meditation on vulnerability, connection, pain, personhood and transformation. So I'm Gavin Creston, and I, I consider myself as a, a performance artist and also an educator and curator of performance art and live art. I was born and schooled in, in Cape Town. I'm an only child, and I was quite introverted or shy uh, at school, and so... <laughs> You know, they didn't quite know what to do, my, my, my parents. Um, sport definitely wasn't my thing. And it was actually my gran who, who thought about children's drama. 
I think she always knew I was creative. I mean, I was always drawing and, and you, you know, I think we're all born creative. It kind of just gets weaned out of it. So I think she just kind of made the connection that, you know, it wasn't going to be through sports. It wasn't going to be through, like, societies or, like, the scouts or <laughs> or a, a religious or spiritual communities that I would um, find a sense of, of socialization or, or, or to try and bring this kind of extroverted personality out. Yes, I think she just uh, thought, well, maybe this is a way where he can um, hone his creativity, but also uh, become a bit more self-confident. Um, so I went to a little like drama school for children that then kind of catapulted or kind of catalyzed a, a, a yeah, real interest. Yeah, and then of course it, it, a hobby becomes a, a, a scholarly endeavor and then it becomes like a profession and a lifestyle and a career. Yeah, I made a decision to go to the Eastern Cape to study at, at Rhodes University where I majored in drama and visual arts. And then I suppose one goes through, it's almost like the, looking back, it's almost like a mass distillation phase. You know, you start looking at everything and then you focus it more on theater and performance. And then it's more perhaps about visual performance and it's choreography. Uh, and then it's just body-based performance. I kind of uh, stopped w with the acting and and dance and kind of really just looked at choreographing action, which I think has resulted in in this kind of task-based, body-based live art. First, place I tend to be quite a goal-orientated, pragmatic person. So, so you kind of set yourself these short, medium, and long-term goals, and then a time comes where you look back at them and you go, oh, well, I've actually achieved that short-term goal and that medium-term goal, and you reassess and you reassess, and then suddenly you, you kind of reassess and you're like, oh, I'm in it, I'm doing it, it is it, it's happening. <laughs> I think that it is, is the, the kind of exchange of energy, the exchange of money for a very specific type of labor. You know, I, I remember at one point after graduating, like after a couple of years, I was like, oh, I'm actually, the money I do make is because of either creating or educating uh, theatre and performance. I was like, oh, that that's that's it. I don't. My my energy and my time is invested in in something that I have actually worked towards and studied and and, and sacrificed for. Um, it's not just this holistic additive, or just it's not just another thing. It is the thing now. Um, I mean, having said that, obviously, uh, living very hand to mouth, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's when you rea realize like, oh, the reason why I'm getting up in the morning is to make art. And the reason why I'm tired at night when I go to bed is because I've made art. Take aim and fire at the bottom. The deadline was approaching for all the paperwork and the funding and the 
And and I was just like, okay, it's yet to be determined. The title's yet to be determined. Everything's yet to be determined. I just knew that I wanted the the audience to be the catalyst or driver of the action. I don't know if it's from a particular type of training in theatre, but there's always so much pressure to like um, do and to fill the space with actions and sounds and whatever. And and we are and we find the audience doing the complete opposite. <laughs> they they're just like they're sitting there quite still and quietly. Um, and, and, and I just knew I wanted to kind of flip that around. Secondly, take your right hand and place it on the metal base and your left in the middle. With an inward twisting motion... Something that... that, that yeah, where, where the labor can be somewhat shared in a collaborative manner in which the audience drives the action as much as I do and that we kind of collaboratively create a space or a costuming or or an action but still one that 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 I was never the, totally an object of but also a subject of and I I, I kind of marinate in in these ideas and they kind of sit in these kind of like almost rational boxes and then when I sleep I have the most wonderful dreams sometimes and then that's where these things kind of uh, come alive and I was just like um, dreaming about kind of the embalming process and mummification um, and how on one hand it's quite macabre but it's also incredibly uh, beautiful and sensitive and intimate and very it's a very labor-induced act of love, and 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 just I kind of had this uh, uh, images of of I, almost as if like the mummy could embalm the embalmer, that the stone sculpture started to become wet, and almost as if they come alive at at night. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's go with this. the opening moments one would uh, walk into an auditorium but it's not so much an auditorium as it is a kind of a, a very intimate seating in the round and in the middle and a very dim spotlight there's this figure uh, myself so so a, a, a white body a male body um, with the genitals kind of um, tucked and pulled back to, to give a tumor-like, a tumor-like uh, uh, appearance, and and there's a black hood uh, uh, over my head, um, so you're really just seeing a body. It's not so much a person as it is a body, and very slowly this body's just shifting. Uh, weight from from leg to leg, drawing from some of your your classic uh, statues like the Venus, the David, uh, sometimes more masculine, sometimes more feminine, and just really circling around. As Creston stands naked in the spotlight with the black hood over his head, 
rotating in slow circles while he tilts his hips and bends his arms. He's accompanied by two contrasting sounds. There's the serene instrumental music that plays softly but continuously in the background, and the loud reverberating footsteps of Creston's assistant, who, in this iteration of the work, was performed by Mlondiwetu Dubazane, dressed smartly in a black suit, white shirt, and formal shoes. The assistant moves back and forth across the stage floor, and then slightly off stage, or at least out of the spotlight, where he retrieves eight small jars of honey, and one by one places the jars on the floor, on the square of black plastic that Creston's standing on. I mean, the honey, I, I don't know why, it just it seemed like the most obvious choice, that, that it, um, it's, it's antibacterial properties, it's ageless properties, it's multi-use. Because I did also kind of... I had the idea of somewhere in in my research, I was also researching the idea of um, tarring and feathering, uh, that kind of cruel custom of when someone gets tarred and feathered. And I was like, okay, well, what is the opposite of this? And then that kind of intersected with this idea of mummification um, and embalming. Like, what what is a what is a beautiful and nice feathering and tarring so I with the embalming I knew I needed like a, a medium that was sticky so that I could be a surface that could adhere things but again something that would make it kind of difficult or labor intensive for for the audience it wasn't just water or um oil it was it was sticky honey that that gets on you and in you I, I kind of wanted uh, 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 the transformation to kind of move from from an object to a person. So there was something about the the anonymous nature that 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 the hood um, provides. Something in my gut just told me that the encounter would perhaps be more intimate for the audience when they were massaging honey into me to rather do it onto a body than onto a person, and that it was kind of through their engagement that a sense of personhood developed. When a naked body can't return its gaze, or you can't see its eyes, it's, it's almost like it's not being recognized for what it is, for what they are. It's kind of just a body, a mannequin, flesh. Creston remains center stage with the honey jars now dotted around his feet. The assistant puts on a pair of surgical gloves, dips his hand into one of the jars, and then methodically begins spreading honey over Creston's bare chest, as if executing a perfunctory, everyday kind of task. Moments later, the assistant hands out gloves to the audience and invites them to step onto the stage and participate in this strange, silent ritual. I can't really hear anything or see anything in that hood. It's quite a, it's a very strange, uh, like, like your skin is almost on fire because all your other senses are gone. Um, and of course you've got like micro hairs all over your body and the sticky honey. So it's quite a, a sensation and it's quite cold and you're cold. I don't know where the front is, where the back is. You're hearing sounds here, there, and everywhere. Um, you can't see anything. 
um, but you can feel that like your skin is alive. You can feel every every action um, and smell, um, uh, particularly perfumes and colognes. But it was entirely discombobulating. As people are placing their hands on on uh, on you, it's 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 incredibly terrifying at first. It's like that first contact, initial contact. Um, and then it becomes quite comforting and quite uh, predictable. Uh, you immediately get a sense of the person's energy through through the rhythm that they use, the pressure that they use. Like I started visualizing what people may look like, um, especially when you start connecting maybe the scent of their cologne or their deodorant or their perfume to their touch as well. You know, you start really considering, then you start hearing jewelry maybe making a noise, you know, if they're wearing bangles and very close to you. Um, so it's all those things going through your mind. I was thinking almost like, is there a way that maybe the audience can experience what I'm experiencing being hooded? Like I'm like everything, everything was so um, amplified for me. So I was like, okay, well, let's, let's take out the music and that amplifies anything that's awkward. You know, it, it kind of, the, the music is the common denominator. Uh, a, a, as like a cushion or shock absorber for, for any of the, the awkwardness or the, the fuffling around. Let's take that out so that everyone becomes hyper aware of, of the stilted moments, the awkward moments, very much how I was hyper aware of the awkward and stilted moments and to maybe signal that, uh, that the mood is gonna shift a little bit now. There are a few things to remember or to consider when handling one of these. First, place yourself on the edge of the mat. Secondly, take your right hand and place it on the metal base and your left in the middle. With an inward twisting motion, which is this gesture, take aim and fire at the body. <laughs> what the assistant picks up and fires at Craston's body from behind is a confetti cannon, a roughly 30 centimeter long tube that, when twisted, shoots out a stream of shimmering pink and gold confetti that falls down like sparkling rain over Craston's honey-covered skin, some of it sticking to his back and legs and some collecting in the pool of honey at his feet. I really wanted that juxtaposition of something so, so uh, kind of uh, uh, violent. I mean, you're literally pointing this kind of thing at someone's head, 
someone who's in a hood. So, you know, you're already thinking of like execution lineups and, and all of those things. And then it's glitter and confetti, uh, which kind of, uh, there's like a comical irreverence, I think, to it. Like one can exhale, like, oh, it's a bang and celebration. This is so gay. <laughs> People were very hesitant in the beginning, but as soon as one person got involved, that almost like allowed permission for someone else to get involved. And then suddenly people were stepping up very quickly. Um, you know, like you go, there's a long hesitation. No one wants to do anything. At times the assistant has to work really hard and demonstrate again. Then someone very reluctantly stands up and does it. And, you know, but they do it maybe in midair. So, so it doesn't go anywhere. But as soon as one person does it, it's like floodgates. And then everyone wants to, to come up and do it and do it and do it. first dozen times I wanted to run and I flinched and, and all of that um, but when you do that it, it kind of made the image even it took the, the image into like victimhood you know what I mean like someone's doing something bad and I I am I'm validating that by cowering so, so, so I deliberately didn't want to to have it read that way the fact that, that people are shooting and aiming things at a hooded body is kind of violent enough. We can read enough into that without needing, needing to kind of like endorse the image further. Again, it was me just trying to do as little as possible. It's about the audience um, doing things. And, and, and I think I probably I believe in that moment. People are probably more transfixed on the audience maybe than they were on me. Like... Is this person going to get the confetti cannon correct? How's it going to go? Who's next? So those moments were just improvised, and yeah, I thought this is such a lovely um, subversion that uh, uh, the, the sword wielder has a has a blunt sword, um, and that it doesn't work. Um, I think there was a moment in Graham somewhere where someone may have sh had it upside down, and and I think they shot themselves actually, which. <laughs> you know, like suddenly everyone was looking at her and laughing at her, and there was a sh there, there was a very brief shift of power that I think was was quite important to maybe what the work was speaking at or to. And and there were two images running through my my mind the one was um i i knew of you know i knew what song i wanted to use at the end so i was like okay i want to somehow become a disco ball like myself 
But then at the same time, I was also going, okay, after mummification, after being embalmed, okay, and now you're being shot, maybe the, the next step in this, this process is maybe to become a stained glass window. You know, that now that you are buried and dead, you your image, I don't know, transcends or whatever to this, this other mode of representation. So I'm thinking stained glass window. I'm thinking very gay song, being a disco ball. But I'm also thinking about how the... Uh, uh, what I really liked in the experimentation phase was how the the kind of... When the confetti or ribbon or paper, whatever it was uh, during the experimentation stage, how it stuck to the honey kind of made my uh, hands and feet a bit bigger. There was something a bit uh, mutant, mutation-y about it, as if the, the, I don't know, forming scales or webbed feet and webbed hands. So... I, I, again, you know, there comes this point where the work just takes over and it speaks to you and tells you what it, what it wants to be. And so I just thought, well, okay, let's, let's be a stained glass window, mutant, mermaid, spectacular, shiny thing. Once all the cannons have been fired and the audience are in their seats again, Craston kneels and then lies down in the confetti at his feet, almost wallowing in it. He rolls onto his stomach, then flops over onto his back, then onto his stomach again, so that when he stands up once more, he's an even bolder version of the shiny, mutant, mermaid being that the audience have helped to create. It's become a bit of a, a gay anthem. Become a bit of a, a declaration of 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 oneself. There's something just so like bubblegum pop, silly about it that 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 just kind of undermines anything that was serious or or deprecating or. Uh, or, 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 or abject and gross about the work. I mean, it, it, it's just such a fun, just totally gay song that you can't help but just like laugh at. not just the song, but also Craston's movements that the audience can't help but smile at. His body, which has been completely still up until now, except for slow rotations and small flinches, finally opens up and spins and dances freely and joyously. It's a bit of a, a bit of a, a moment of going, you know, like, okay, well, maybe this is my drag. Maybe I wear scaly glitter skin and you know that's that's actually who i am <laughs> or, or what one can be um and that it's and it also um it made absolutely no sense so in that way i thought it made sense yeah, you, you know, sometimes you just have to go, go the opposite. Sometimes you just have to go like, okay, let's undermine 
all of this let's undo everything we've we've built you know these like really um potentially uh, uh, uh intimate and sacred and special moments um between the audience and and of course like I've been still the whole time and then you know you kind of get your three minutes where all eyes are on you and you kind of you know dancing on your own as the bridge of the song plays Creston tosses off the black hood and holds his head up high so that for the first time in the performance we see his face like such a juxtaposition because of course you do you want to get up you want to dance you want to let all your gayness out in you forever and then you realize that it's the the form is so joyful but the content is is quite sad and 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 she kind of rips the rug from under your feet um in that song and and the happy joyful way she's talking about really difficult things um is something that very much resonated with me and i and i also thought yeah it's maybe a bit like yet to be determined like there's a little bit of blood and pain underneath here once the song finishes creston stops dancing and breathes in and out deeply we notice something on his forehead what looks from a distance like markings or makeup but as he moves his hand to his forehead and begins to pull we realize that it's not something on but in his forehead three long needles and a kind of trident formation piercing his skin he pulls the needles out one by one and blood almost as vivid as the confetti sticking to his body now spills out of his punctured skin and drips down his face over his eyelids and along the side of his nose that to me was like the the the, the really important moment where were you locking eyes with an audience member while completely masked in terms of like this costuming you're wearing but yet your insides are also spilling outside through all this blood and I, I, this is weird like I don't know loop of concealing and revealing of of looking and connecting In the final moments of the performance Gavin Creston stands and turns around slowly in an echo of the work's opening scene except now he's looking directly at the audience with the hood off and with blood dripping down onto his lips the hood is taken off and we can return or i can return the gaze with with the person looking at me um but beyond me like there's something about blood your dna your history your makeup that that you know you see me that this whole work was kind of like a, a, a an investigation in robing and derobing putting on layers and taking off layers and and if i could in in the last scene i i would have like like to have taken off all of my skin
or I wanted my eyes to fade away and only my third eye open. Now again, I, I literally dream these things while I'm asleep and I was going, okay, well, how am I going to do this realistically? Pulling those needles out of one's forehead until it bleeds is the opening of a third eye, maybe. It is the, it is the shedding of the skin. It is, it's, it's, Everything that has been trying to be contained, you know, the, the audience has tried to contain the body by, by, by kind of moisturizing it or embalming it in honey. They then tried to transform and contain the body with this kind of glitter uh, confetti that, that becomes the scaly skin. Um, there's been a, 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 an anonymous body with the hood, right? So it's kind of like that final act is despite all of the embalming, the covering, the the de-identification, like, here is the DNA, the blood, the everything, that the, the absolute inner, inner me. The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It's produced and edited by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode features Smooth Stone by Blue Dot Sessions. Join us for episode 6 of season 2, featuring performance artist Ati Pataruga. See you soon, and thanks for listening. <laughs>